Welcome to the Czech Podcast. I'm Brady Vixelio, owner of Steinhobel's Restaurant in La Bella Italia on Laskin Road in Virginia Beach. And I'm Alvin Williams, co-host of the Czech and owner of Cobalt Grill Restaurant in Hilltop, Virginia Beach. If you listened to our podcast before, you'll know we've been talking about restaurants, people who work in restaurants, who own restaurants, and the people who like to dine in restaurants. We've taken the podcast on the road to meet the people who make some of the things we enjoy drinking in restaurants and to learn more about the places where it all happens. We're at the historic Castle Hill in Keswick, a few miles east of Charlottesville. Today, we're going to be joined by cider maker Don Whitaker and Rob Campbell, the general manager of Castle Hill. Thank you guys for joining us so much and being on the podcast and welcome to The Check. Thank you for having us. Ditto. This place is absolutely beautiful. Can you tell us some more about the history and how it came to be a cidery? All right, so let's go back to 1764 when the estate was established. 18,000 acres was originally part of a land grant from King George. And in 1764, a gentleman named Colonel Thomas Walker, who was a surgeon, a surveyor, um, a mentor to a young Jefferson, bought that. And it was when he was serving um, with General Washington at the, ba- the Battle of Brandywine. And was that 1777? Yes, yeah, 1777. And um, George Washington gave him some scions, which are um, apple tree seedling uh, saplings, and said, hey, you should try this, this tree. It's called a Newton Pippin. So Colonel Thomas Walker came back to this estate, Castle Hill. He planted the first Newton Pippin. And basically, the rest is literally history. This land is locked with a particular terroir that is based off of that original scion. And it became such a strong cider apple um, in this area, in this region, that it replaced the name of Newton Pippin um, and is now known as Albemarle Pippin. So Albemarle Pippin is the go-to, probably, Virginia cider apple. And that's kind of just the tip of the iceberg for the history here. (laughs) Well, Don, um, clearly if this cider making stuff doesn't work out for you, you have a voice for radio. so And a face for it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like to know more about the orchards here. Are the apples different here than what we would typically buy in a grocery store? Yes, they are. Um, So what I I literally I just got out of the field um, checking on the apples doing starch tests. Um, We have approximately 56 different cider apples. So... Our apples are made for cider. What we focus on is pH, which would be acidity. We focus on tannins. We focus on sugars. These are the things that usually give us the best cider characteristics. Whereas a table apple, or as I used to always say, the Scooby-Doo lunchbox apple, is basically just sugar. They're sugar bombs. And although there's some that kind of cross the line, you can actually get a pretty decent cider apple out of sometimes a honey crisp even. But really what we're doing is growing cider apples, bittersweets, bitter sharps, traditional cider apples, as well as some experimentation with a little bit of hybridization. Right. When we arrived here, you were out in the, out in the orchard, literally <laughs> working the apples. Doing a starch test. Can you tell us about that? What, what is a starch test? Sure. So basically what we do is we take the apple, we cut it in half, and we apply iodine solution to it. And if the apple is ripe and ready to pick, the flesh will be kind of opaque and or white neutral. Whereas if the sugars have not developed and there's mainly starches, which would mean it's, it's immature, not ripe, 
then the flesh would be darker, almost black, even a purple indigo almost. This year, it's been wild because we had a very late frost and that's affected the orchard. Plus we've had the weather, the climate has been very bizarre. We've had lots of rain followed by lots of heat, followed by cool temperatures, by more rain than lots of heat. So it's really set our uh, ripening schedule off and everything's ripening a lot quicker than it is. So other than just seeing it on the ground and uh, an easy bio indicator of the ripeness of the apples are the deer, they're our friends until they eat all of our stock. But you know, the second we see the deer going for the apples, then we know that there's sugar there. And um, in lieu of waiting on the deer or not seeing any deer, um, we do the starch test. This year has been atypical for growing apples. Is this generally an ideal climate for growing apples in Virginia? You know, we're it, it's all a bit of an experimentation, but yes, we're finding that it is. Um, this particular land um, being where it is kind of in a, like a tiny bit of a valley just off of those um, mountains right there um, seems to offer some protection. We have our own microclimate here. You know, every year is different. In 2018, we had 96 inches of rain. That's twice as much, I think, has ever been recorded or something like that. And that year had its own challenges, but we got amazing cider out of it. This year, we had two late frosts. I think the last one hit in May and maybe even one in June. And um, so we're still seeing the repercussions of that. There's telltale signs that are physically indicative of a frost attack, and then some of it you don't see until later. And so right now, we're seeing apples ripening quicker than they normally do. Don, yes. you, you actually talked about the rainfall. How does, the, yes. how does moisture affect the apples? Originally, we thought that excessive rainfall would dilute the sugar in the apples, but in 2018, we found that to be quite the contrary. So the evidence of most of that particular question for an abundance of rain ended up being counterintuitive. So we ended up having uh, actually pretty high sugar content that year. This year, last year also, we had less rainfall and the sugar, higher ABV, and we had a higher ABV. Probably go, again going back to you know a higher sugar content. Typically, the higher the sugar content, the higher the ABV. Now ABV and is alcohol, alcohol by volume. By volume. So like most of our ciders are somewhere between just say at the very low end of the scale, like six, all the way up to eighteen. And um, the eighteen, we get that by um, what adding we- a little UDV, giving a little boost, but. Um, we just we did a, a single varietal, a black twig ferment, and it ended up being right at eleven. Um, of course, that was after we aged it in a bourbon barrel, you know. So it's got a it's got a little something for you. So what are we drinking now? What's the uh- in the serendipity eighteen? And when we say eighteen, that's the year that it was actually the fruit was actually picked in. So we usually pick it in one year, and then we'll actually bottle it in the next. So we let the apples uh, basically mature. ripen and yeah. mature. And yeah. sweat to uh, bring out more sugars and more tannins in the apples. And what'll be interesting is like when we all finish those, we'll do a 2019. Because what you're drinking is the year that we thought that the sugar is going to be super diluted, and this one actually ended up being fantastic. Rob, tell our listeners um, a little bit about what you do at Castle Hill Cider and what is your role here. Well, I'm I'm the general manager, but that doesn't really mean much here. We're a we're a no, I mean, in terms of we're a small operation, so we each do a little bit of everything. You can find me out in the fields sometimes. You can find me helping bottle. I oversee the the day to day operations, but you guys know in small operations, you're not going to uh, have one set thing you do every day. 
It's just whatever uh, obstacles you come up against, you figure out ways to get past them. He's definitely the ship's captain. He's just hiding his plume right now. Gotcha. So he's he's generally managing. That's right. <laughs> there we go. I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's general manager. And about you, young sir? I'm the cider maker. Head of the orchard. Orchard provocateur, I guess. Yeah, so it just it's nonstop. I mean, production uh, here, a lot of places you'll you'll see jobs very specialized and fragmented, if you will, where here it's it's kind of brought into a concise heading. So cider cider maker is pretty much anything that Rob's not doing at the time. You mentioned earlier the Newton Apple became the Pippin Apple. Yes. And, and I read a little bit about the Albemarle Pippin. And as you said, grown here at first, it's in 1777. Still use these apples to make cider. Is there an advantage to the older variety of apple? Yes, because it's tried and true. It's kind of like a tank. You can always depend on it. So definitely, yes. Albemarle Pippin, you can always go for... And then since you know, since then we found a couple of others that are are tried and trues as well. Like um, the Harrison, for example, is probably like the modern Albemarle Pippin. Um, when Albemarle Pippin got its roots here, literally, we found this you know beautiful balance of acid tannins and sugar. And then this Harrison, um, I can't remember who brought that here first. It's got an, a, another wonderful blend of qualities that are just all, you know almost perfect. And so then, you know, we'll use, you know, something like one of those is like maybe a main component of a blend and then just spice it up with other apples and, and, and other varieties from that. It's actually the main apple in our uh, two thousand in our serendipity. It is. So yeah. we use two, two apples in that. We don't actually use any additional flavorings, any additional sugars. It's all from the apples, what you guys are tasting right now. And that is uh, the Admiral Pippin and the Gold Rush apples. Yep. So this that we're drinking right now is a serendipity. Is that is that right? Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. Uh, it's the first one we've tasted, but I'm 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 already forgetting what it is. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. So, in addition to this delicious cider that we're tasting, it's my understanding that there's also some honey available at Castle Hill. Ooh. Uh, yes. Bees and honey making. Could you uh, elaborate on that? We actually have five uh, honey honey hives. Yes. Hives on on property right now, and we're actually. Uh, Elysium is who makes our honey for us. Uh, they have a number of tree, a number number of hives around the area, but they're actually making a specialized one that's just from our property. And we actually use the uh, the bees in more ways than one. We actually use the beeswax the wax. Uh, to repair our keveries, which we can talk about later. Which is where we make uh, cider in the ground. We believe in uh, ground to glass. We believe in uh, a holistic approach to cidery. Yeah, and that's one of the things that uh, Diego, the beekeeper, he's Italian, and he brings a lineage of beekeeping from Italy, and one of the things that he has really helped us develop a sense of is integrated pest management, excuse me, integrated pest management, whereby we try to attract local beneficial insects to take care of the local non-beneficial insects so if we have like something that's coming in like say a stink bug or oriental fruit moth or lanternfly or something like that we would have some local little critter that could take care of it before it starts attacking the apples don a minute ago you mentioned ground of glass can you tell us a little bit more about that philosophy sure absolutely um it's it's a wonderful opportunity for us here at castle hill to practice this what we're talking about is literally from ground to glass as local as possible 
again, you know, hearkening back to the Albemarle Pippin grown on this land. We're looking at local mineralogy. We're looking at the their terroir um, of terroir. this area, which in, in, encompasses, you know, the geomorphology, the geology, soil chemistry, weather, all of these things. And then how that of this particular area in turn manifests in the fruit, which then manifests in the cider. And we've even found a place to kind of locally source our glass bottles from now. But yeah, so the whole idea is to bring the experience from this land into the glass for the consumer and for the connoisseur and the enjoyer um, and see where that journey takes you. Yeah, and our ultimate goal is to have 100% of steak-grown fruit go all into our products. Right now, we're probably 80% of the way there. In right. terms of you know our goal of being 100% self-sustainable. Sometimes, some years, a variety won't do as well as it did the year before. But the beautiful thing about that is the cider making in Virginia um, and the orcharding in Virginia, we're all part of one big tribe. We may fight amongst ourselves a little bit every now and then, but we also will fight for each other as well. We'll call one of our friends say, hey, can we trade? Can we buy? And we'll work these things out. And we try and we stay local mm-hmm. is, is, you know, the manifesto. But I was interested in how you guys are navigating through COVID and are your sales different? Is your production different? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Obviously, when you're closed for two months, it, it impacts your sales. But uh, you know, the nice thing that we did find is we pivoted in our business. That's something we always like to say is uh, that's what we're constantly doing. And we went more online during that time. We had a great um, online um, boost. Uh, we were supporting the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank uh, for every case we sold of Serendipity 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, we gave $10 to the local food bank. And so that took off. It got picked up by a national magazine. And so our sales went from like, maybe we were doing a thousand, just a theoretical numbers, a thousand dollars a month to all of a sudden we were doing 15,000 a month. It was pretty crazy because we had to figure out how to do it because we, we hadn't done that volume before. Just to, you know, put people in the right direction on your cider. This is not your, I don't want to say your granddaddy cider. Oh, this is not the cider that I grew up drinking when I was 14 or 15 in England. This is, this is, um, a different cider. To me, I, I, I like to think of it as like the champagne of ciders. It's more like a, it's more like a wine, and or, or like a champagne. And I want everyone to to know exactly what that is. So, can you explain about the the fermentation process and 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 how you go about making this stuff? A lot of people refer to it as apple wine. It is cider, but a lot of folks will refer to it as apple wine because we're we use very similar techniques to the the viticulturists the winemakers we're using very similar yeast if not the same yeast sometimes to bring out those qualities we use you know champagne yeast we'll use um you know a a myriad to bring out various qualities thankfully there's a, a bit of a textbook from the wine world and you know they're like oh well we use this yeast or this vitamin and it did this and it brought this out so then we can take that and we can apply it to apples, but it might be a little bit different, but it's, it's a very similar technique. So basically the gist is this. We pick the apples from the tree. We press the apples. The juice goes into the tank. We wait a couple of days. We run a bricks analysis on it to let us know um, how much sugar is available in the apple to be converted into alcohol. And then we start the fermentation process. So when we start the ferment- fermentation process, we will add yeast rather than use a wild fermentation in all cases except one. I'm, I'm going to stop you there for just a second and say yes. one of the coolest things that we've done during this time on our Facebook Lives right. is we've had two different wineries on Keswick, which yes. Keswick Winery, which is across the street. 
right. uh, Stephen Barnard. Yes. And we had Stone Tower on, and we were comparing and contrasting styles in terms of cider or apples versus grapes, and that was fascinating to me to listen to you guys kind of talk about the similarities yeah. and how many there are. The commonalities were a lot more than than not, so it was it was very interesting. And we're still comparing notes. I'm like right now, I've got I don't know 45 pounds of grapes that a friend of mine procured, and he's like, "Do something with this." And then we have the honey here that we're working on doing either a sizer, um, which is basically a mead, but instead of using water and honey, you use apple juice and honey, and then or even honey back sweetened cider. So just using the honey from the the hives out here to do that. But so once the once the fermentation takes hold, we just start watching it. We we, we ferment low and slow at about fifty five degrees. It's in a stainless steel tank. We're monitoring the the temperature. We're monitoring um, CO two. Uh, we use a sparger method where once the cider has fully fermented, then we can start protecting it with a layer of CO2. That means just in case like some oxygen somehow got in there and we don't want that because that in two weeks that could be vinegar. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing because apple cider vinegar is great and we've done that, but you know, we want cider. So the fermentation process is really probably the most important painstaking part. And we're checking that every single day. It involves mixing and testing. And we're also testing SO2 levels. We're testing pH, all of these things until basically all of the sugar has been converted into alcohol. Once that has happened, then we have a dry cider. It's, it's pretty, pretty stable at that point because all the sugar, except for a very minute fraction, and those would be called non-fermentable sugars. They just retain, they're just, they're still there. So then we get the question of, okay, what well, do we want to leave it like that? Or do we want to filter that out? Um, in the past, we've even, not only have we racked off, which in racking is letting the lees, the, the heavier parts that were in the juice settle down in the tank and pull the clear juice off or the clear cider off, leaving the lees, which then we in turn mix with the mash. That's our first filtering thing that we do. And at that point, we can either say, okay, we're good, or we may filter again and you know, take even more out of it. And then we may decide to pasteurize. And pasteurize would absolutely annihilate anything else that could possibly be in there. Every cider that we do goes through that scrutiny of where do we want it to be. And we just kind of taste it and, and let the taste decide. Once the, it's fermented, then you know we have a single varietal. So say like the Albemarle Pippin, it's fermented, it's stable, boom, we'll keep it. And then when other apples come on and we've juiced them and we fermented them, we made cider, then the magic starts and we start blending them together. And that's when we start having a lot of fun. As awesome as single varietals are, which they are is very purist and fantastic, but you know, a lot of fun in blending as well. This year, one of the blends, I got crazy and I had like 17 different apples in it. Only because we only had like three gallons of one and one gallon of the other. And I'm like, you're going in there. You're going to be in that cider. It sounds like you're a winemaker. <laughs> I don't know. But, with apples. But you have apples in that Exactly. Grapes. Exactly. For you. Yes, sir. Why apples? Good question. Well, for here, you know, I think, you know, the emphasis was on apples. There was an opportunity to possibly do a vineyard at one point, and the powers that be decided to do apples. Let's give it a go with that, because our friends at Albemarle Cider Works, the Shelton family, are the first cidery in Virginia. 
And so they were like mentors for us and to us and still are friends of ours and kind of guided us along in the process a little bit. But one of the things that we, dare I say, like better than grapes is the stability of the apple. It's a little more predictable and that's good for us. Any bit of predictability we can have is good because we get enough wild cards thrown at us. We were talking about the frost earlier. The wine business lost a lot of their grapes during the frost. Whereas we, instead of it being on a less substantial vine, it's on a tree limb. It's got more power. It's sustain. It's more a little more sustainable. And then plus, I just I kind of grew up liking apples better than grapes. I have a, a two-part question here. Yes, sir. While I'm going into this next next cider, <laughs> um, what is it, Rob? What, what is the cider you just poured for us here? So we, this is something we actually drink internally. It's a mixture of the Serendipity 18 you guys were drinking earlier, and then elder, elder cherry, which is elderberry and cherry cider. So we call, we call it our blush, is what we like to call it. Very nice. Very nice. So while I still have my train of thought, so firstly for you, Rob, and then secondly for you, Don. Rob, as cider's become more popular, the market has become more crowded and competitive, please let me know some of the things that you're doing here to set yourself apart. And for Don, explain to us about... I'm, privy to a little information about these terracotta pots that you have um that you've imported that call keverly keverly keveries keveries so uh if you would tell us a little bit more about those and where they're from and, and what their purpose is here the type of cider we make which is the heritage cider we tend to make it on more dry so a lot of the traditional ciders you may have you guys may have drank are going to be on the sweeter side i almost like to say like a jolly rancherish and our Ciders typically finish more like a like a dry white wine. Uh, that segment of the market was not really established ten years ago. There's really no no place to put it. Now we're finding as just like the craft beer uh, market when you know there was the, you know growing up there was probably five major uh, beer brands that we could buy from, and now there's thousands that we can buy from. So what I see is that there's been the um, surge in cider usage from the Bold Rocks to the Angry Orchards uh, to the uh, larger scale, and now we're getting into more craft. Uh, So the way we're actually differentiating ourselves is, you know, competing in that new niche uh, that's being created by the big cider people. We're actually uh, starting to uh, put the word out there that there's another uh, another game in town. Yeah, exactly. And and that's a, being a part of creating a market is super dynamic and fantastic and exciting. You know, we started doing a cider fest here. I don't know, I guess they were doing at least four years that I've been here. And the only cideries that were here were cideries that were using their estate grown fruit. So there was like five or six at the time. And that number is increasing, which is fantastic. We love to see that. So everyone's apples have a different quality. And so it's awesome to see those differences and then to celebrate it. So, you know, we had this whole thing called Cider Fest, but unfortunately we're not going to be able to do it this year because of the dreaded right. COVID. And, and the other thing the other thing we're doing that kind of separates us is we do a lot more blends uh, right. compared to a lot of other cideries. You'll see them do a single varietal a lot of times. We do a couple single varietals like the Black Twig. We just took out a barrel. Right. But for the most part, we're doing uh, more complex blends. blends. Once we get enough of a single varietal, then you know we'll hopefully do some more single varietals. But usually, like, that'll be fun. A lot of the blending is by by taste, and so that's one of the hard parts of our job is we have to continuously taste ciders all day long. 
Of course, we have to spit it out. You know, and the keveries. Tell us about the keveries because they're beautiful. I've, I've seen them on property here, and they're just stunning to, to look at. Explain their function. The keveries are awesome. The keveries are a throwback to the oldest known fermentation vessels in recorded history. Our keveries are in a Pacific location. They never move. It's not transported. They're terracotta. Um, ours were made in the Republic of Georgia. We had them shipped over here, came over on uh, seafaring vessels. And it was funny because when we opened up one of the crates, one of the Kevries cracked when it got to the sunlight because on its voyage over, there was a random nail that had just poked through the, the wood. And so it was scratching this one little part of the Kevry on its way over. And the second it got here, it got out, cracked. So we had to get another one. What we do with those Kevries, and we have four that are approximately 300 gallons a piece, and then four that are approximately 100 gallons a piece. It's a wild fermentation. So this is where we go totally old school. We're not adding any yeast to it. We're not. It is Mother Nature's child. We put the juice into the Kevry and let her do her thing. So it's not much work. You just throw the juice in there and it's It done. practically makes itself... Yes. Cider um, magic. Exactly. So no, we're, we're constantly monitoring it. You know, again, we have to, you know, watch the bricks. We have to make sure that, you know, it, you know, make sure the pH, see what it's doing, check its SO2, make sure that, you know, nothing funky is happening, making sure it's not going to go to vinegar if, in case there was some oxidation or something. I think we're the only cidery in the United States. Yes that are using this method. And I know that some of the wineries and vineyards are, are working on it. It's called a spontaneous fermentation. Mm -hmm. no, I was just going to say that one of the reasons we have them buried in the ground is so you can keep the temperature constant. Exactly. So there's like a geothermal gradient. And once you're about 18, 21 inches below the frost line, the earth appears to maintain about a 45 degree temperature. So yeah, it's in the ground. It's like 45 degrees. Again, like we like to ferment all of our ciders low and slow at about 55. So when we do the Kevries, it probably takes a little bit slower. Contrary to what one may think, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, definitely you wouldn't want to start making a, a Kevry cider in the middle of the summer when it's so hot. And it's like, actually you can because it's underground. It's being protected by that, like a cave. In case there's like a, a, a micro fracture, a hairline crack or anything like that, that 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 shows up, we have to repair it. And the traditional method is using beeswax. And now we can use beeswax straight off of the hives that Diego has. The fermentation method there is a spontaneous fermentation. It's the wild yeast that are just out in the orchard, out in that area, underneath the linden trees, which is amazing. And they have their own properties and their beauty. There was one gentleman, I can't remember who the author was, but he called spontaneous fermentations the punk rock of, of fermentation because he's, like, he's just wild and it's like free jazz meets punk rock or something. And the, the thing that I love about the Kevries is the creativity it brings. Yes. So we've actually been talking with some different people about potentially putting kombucha in there. Um, if we knew any chefs, we would ask them if they wanted to do, maybe do it. If we knew any. If we knew any chefs, we, we would ask them about <laughs> maybe doing uh, ferment, fermented things such as kimchi, um, yeah. sauerkraut. Not in the same ones that we'd be making the cider yes. in. They would have so, their designated spot. So we have four spot. small ones that we're going to do some, yeah. uh, we're going to play around with. Yeah, exactly. It is a very delicious beverage, and, <laughs> and you, we are partaking in that right now. And, and they stand alone excellently. I could just Thank sit you. and drink your Thank cider you. all day and have done before. We can and, do that. And will again. <laughs> I am hoping you can tell our listeners what your ciders pair well with, with, with food, be it sure. at home cooking or in restaurants. You know, sure. What do you think they pair well with? It's not so cut and dry at all, but this is just kind of a, a basic jumping off place. 
is drier ciders tend to pair well with funkier cheeses, milder fish, flaky fish, a milder taste, chicken even, some Asian dishes. As it starts getting sweeter, it gets a little bolder, and so we can accent those bolder flavors, the tannins, and a little bit of the sweetness with with bolder varieties in the food. So pork becomes a big one, and different cheeses, and then nuts, and cider pairs well with everything. Yeah, we did a, a food and wine pairing, or food and cider pairing at right. Cobalt with your Excellent. cider uh, some time ago. And What did you do? We did oysters, if I remember nice. rightly. And nice. I think we did a shrimp course, scallop course. So nice. It was, it was heavier on the seafood, but they sure. paired really well. And, Thank you. And the guests enjoyed it and bought cider. So Excellent. Your cider. Excellent. I mean, just from drinking the cider and, and having had it over the, enjoyed it over the years, it's hard to find something at this level of refinement that's good with spicy food. Exactly. And I think cider kind of bridges that gap. Like, you really don't right. want to drink wine with something spicy. Right. And beer, I mean, if you're not a beer guy... Sure. Cider fills that gap. It's a good point. We actually were um, sitting down with a bunch of hot food not too long ago, and we were, we were having the same exact discussion, and we, were, and it, we, we came to a crossroads where... Team A was like, it's it's the dry ciders. Team B was like, no, it's the sweet ciders. And it was just like, okay, well, it works. Either one of them work. I was like, okay, well, there we go. But I was almost thinking that the sweet ciders would pair a little bit better with spicy food just because the sugar, if you're looking for something to tame the heat. If you're looking for something to tame the heat, then possibly a sweeter cider. If you enjoy the heat, then go dry. Be bold. All of you listening, please recommend the cider for the spicy dishes, as well as all dishes. So, gentlemen, how can our listeners find you, find your ciders, find all the different things that you're doing here over at Castle Hill? I mean, you're not just a cidery. You, you do events and, and such yes, also. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you do throughout the year? So you can actually find us on castlehillcider.com. That's probably the best place to uh, reach out to us. We have all of our different uh, modalities, I guess is the uh, correct word. So we actually make cider here as well as do uh, large-scale events in our 11,000-square-foot uh, event space. And smaller scale events too, sometimes. and we do smaller scale events as well. So we have a lofted space that uh, we can host to, you know, about a hundred up there as well. I've seen pictures of elephants rolling through here. Yes, and all, all kinds yeah, traditional of stuff. Indian wedding. Yeah, yes, which which are amazing, three and colorful, days long, and vibrant. We love them. <laughs> big events, big big classy events. Um, yeah, and then just ask for us. So if you know, if there's a place that you frequent and you would like to see us there, please let them know. Rob, Don, thank you so much for joining us on the Czech Podcast. It's thank you. Like thank thank you all. for having us. Extremely informative. Oh, and, no. And, yes. And, and quite tasty. Yes, that's the idea. Yay. Yeah. So we're enjoying the tasting, and, and hopefully uh, some of our listeners will come out to Castle Hill Cider and come Please. to the tasting room and try everything and, and buy it and visit you online at castlehill.com. Yes. And we're going to post uh, your website on our on our website it's actually a great day trip from virginia beach to come up here and visit us exactly and we'll have all those links on the checkpodcast.com as well as other episodes photos of don and rob and castle hill soldery i'm brady and i'm alvin this is the, the check, check.